Hi, and welcome to Five Compelling Questions with Sean. This is the podcast where we speak with writers about writing and publishing and books. And once in a while, we have debut authors. And once in a while, we have authors that have had 40 books out. And then we have people that are right in the middle. And I think I'm talking with someone who's closer to the beginning of their career today. Um, we will clarify all of that because I, she's a woman that has done multiple, multiple things with writing so far, but we're going to get into all of that. My guest today is Jane Rubin. How are you, Jane? I'm fine. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited that you're here for a, for a number of reasons, but I'm very, very excited that you're here. Um, I'm going to give you a bio. I'm going to read your bio for everyone that's listening. Um, Jane, a terrifying diagnosis a genetic defect, and a lifelong fascination with the history of medicine led Jane Rubin to put pen to paper. Um, after an ovarian cancer diagnosis in 2009, Jane, then a healthcare executive, poured her energy into raising research dollars for ovarian cancer and learning more about her familial roots. Her research led her to her great-grandmother, Matilda, who arrived in New York City in 1866 at 16, married a man 12 years her senior, and later died of a woman's disease. This is a detailed bio, but it kind of will make sense when we start talking about the book. So we're going to we're going to keep going. Then the trail ran cold with limited facts. She was determined to give Tilly an exciting fictional life of her own. Jane was left imagining Tilly's life, her fight with terminal disease and circumstances surrounding her death. Um, her research of the history of New York City, its ultra conservative reproductive laws and the state of medicine during that era has culminated into a suspenseful, fast paced two book historical series. Her engaging characters are confronted with the shifting role of midwives, dangers of pregnancy, the infamous Blackwell's work, workhouse, and the perilous road to financial success. In the hands of women is the book. Yes, that is what we. That was a long preamble to get to the book, which was where it's been all very exciting. Um, and then you have other publications as well, which we'll talk about. So tell us about your book, In the Hands of Women. Well, first I want to thank Level Best for an amazing cover. Um, it was exactly what I dreamt of having. In the Hands of woman, Women is a historical fiction that centers around uh, one of the first obstetricians in the United States. Um, she's a fictional character. She's Jewish. Her name is Hannah Isaacson. And Hannah in, is in her third year of medical school at Johns Hopkins as the book opens. She is confronted with um, an environment where birth control is illegal, abortion is illegal. There's massive immigration coming into the cities, the East Coast cities. And she's originally from New York and she does return at the end of her training to New York and joins the medical staff at Mount Sinai is an attempt to bring better health care to women. And from there, the book takes off like a rocket through many, many of the challenges that women of that time faced. And she, of course, has her own challenges, but you have to read the book to find those out. Absolutely. And even though it's a, you know, it's set in historic times, it sounds really familiar. Yes. <laughs> Yes, and interestingly, um, I had completed the writing of the first draft a year before Roe v. Wade was overturned, so I had no idea that was coming, and it was just serendipity that I had written so much about a character that was trying to bring better, um, improve rights around um, reproduction and family planning to um, 
to the characters of that time. And she befriends Margaret Sanger, who at that period of her life before the eugenics and all the very controversial aspects of Margaret Sanger began, was a diehard suffragette who um, my character befriends. Yeah, and it's it's great how you kind of weave those history, you know, those points into the work. And um, it, it's 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 enlightening as well as entertaining. And I think that's the the nice balance that you have to hit when you're you know writing fiction. Um, so kind of kind of to go along with that, the very first question, and you, I wanted to, I alluded to a little bit in the in your brief bio that I read, but you have other there's other points in your bio that you can talk about right now. How did your writing career get started? You've written other things to so tell us about yeah. how how did how did it all get started for you? Um, the trigger for writing to uh, uh, writing a book for publication got started in two thousand and nine, when I was diagnosed with ovarian cancer, and I have to say that if it weren't for my phys physicians and very very trusty medical team, I wouldn't be here today having this talk. So I'm terribly grateful to them. And I had always been very, very interested in the history of medicine and how we, I dealt with a lot of medical innovation in my job. And I kept thinking in a hundred years from now, people are going to look back and think what we're doing today is medieval. And so I kept thinking about my great grandmother, Matilda, and how her um, life and her treatment in the late 1800s and early 1900s must have felt medieval. So the trigger that got me going with writing initially was the diagnosis. And I began writing an essay memoir, mostly because I was expecting my first grandchild, who is now a terrible teenager. And um, and I'm very proud of her. She was poet laureate of her eighth grade class and a little brag note, but um, I also have six other grandchildren and I didn't think I would meet any of them. So I wanted to give them my voice and the book, Almost a Princess, My Life as a Two-Time Cancer Survivor was self-published. I didn't think I had time to even try to get it published traditionally, but it did resonate particularly in the cancer community. And it's an essay of essays about strength, about my family, folklore, about me and frightening times I had in my life and how I how I gathered the courage to deal with a very desperate diagnosis. And and I sometimes actually go back and look at some of those essays when I'm having a period where I'm waiting for lab tests and I'm nervous. And I go back and I I think about some of the mantras that I that I have lived with and why I have chosen them. Absolutely, and that's um. Thank you for sharing all of that with us too. And uh, as you, as some people may know, I'm in the similar boat as you. And I've had you know I had a rare cancer, and I'm still going through. You know, I just got done with treatments about six months ago. So, but it's I think the term life changing is very much overused and then when something like this does happen it does it just alters your path it does because you know you used you turned it into something productive and I'm you know I have a feeling that all the stuff that we do to help ourselves through that is productive that helps you're and you're helping other people with this advice and these this experiences that helps you get through it really does I mean it's it's it is life-altering but you can alter it back in some ways for yourself I think too oh yeah yeah and um it also helped me network 
when you reach out, some people hold so much inside. And I think at the turn of the century, cancer wasn't a word that people spoke out loud. Cancer was a death sentence. And, and so most people, particularly with any GYN cancers, back then they saw it as akin to a venereal disease. And so people felt very ashamed, even if they had no reason to. They didn't want to be judged and they kept things secret and they had to really navigate this lonely, horrible course in their at the end of their lives where today, we have so many opportunities to reach out and get support from others. And it's a really terrific advancement in itself. Yeah, absolutely. And now you have a novel, you have a novel inspired by some of these themes. And that's, that is, that is wonderful. And it's such a good book. And we, you know, we've really loved it. Um, so um, this sort of goes along with the first question. What is the most difficult part of the writing creative, creative writing process for you? Because you're an established non, I would say nonfiction writer. Um, and what is the easiest for you about create, you know, the creative process? Um, you know, it's funny when I retired four years ago, um, it, it was very clear to me that high on my bucket list was going to be writing. Um, and I had written executive um, memos and briefs throughout my 30 year career in healthcare, And I wrote in bullets. And the first thing I had to rediscover was a, an adjective. And um, and how to describe things. And because we never described things, we stated them in the raw, shortest, most concise way possible so people would read it. And so the writing process was the difficult part. And so I immediately enrolled in a number of programs and schools and online stuff and had reader writing groups and got tons and tons of education and feedback. And I bought books about writing. And so I really needed to learn the craft of writing a story. Um, and that took Oh, that took a lot of time. My first novel, which is the prequel to In the Hands of Women, will be coming out about May in, to the, in 2024. And it's a story about Tilly, my great grandmother. That was the first book I wrote. And it was just so awful that I had to put it in my desk drawer. And, um, and I was inspired by Tilly's younger sister, Hannah, and immediately started writing Threadbare and it went like a rocket. Um, all the lessons I had learned, everything came together in the story. And so the last year or so, I've been pulling Threadbare apart and rewriting it. And um, it's, it's both challenging and embarrassing, um, but I have learned a lot and it's been very humbling. Um, so the craft of writing is not so easy and I have a tremendous respect for all writers. Um, even if I don't enjoy their work, I respect it um, because they have spent hours and hours and hours crafting their work. The easiest part was the plot. I just, I have, my life has been so rich with experiences and people. I am a people person. I've had jobs where I've had to interface with a lot of different personality types and situations. I was head of emergency services for a while in my health system. I, I feel like I've, we traveled a lot and it was, and I've read immensely. So coming up with with a storyline was not so difficult. 
And as a matter of fact, that's probably the biggest contribution I make when I get together with my writing friends. They'll work on some of my sentence structure and word choices, and I'll get right down to their plot and their characters and if they're strong. That's great. It's good that you could recognize where you might need a little bit of advice or support, mm -hmm. and then you can turn around and give it right back. And you are a great you know, crafter of story. And that uh, comes through very clearly on the page. And you've had this inspiration, which is amazing. Um, so what do you think, what would you like readers to take away after reading your book? I mean, it's obviously very well researched. It's got a lot, it's got weighty history to it. It's got real life characters based on real life people is what I mean. So what do you hope people will take away from it? We have lived in a time where people have almost naturally exaggerated their polarization on issues. And it's really troubled me um, having lived now, I'm gonna be turning 70 this year. And I've lived through a lot of decades and I've seen a lot of politics and political trends come and go. And one of the things that I have seen for the first time is this bandwagon effect of people just hopping on a bandwagon. Um, and it has been dangerous to me. It's felt dangerous. It's felt um, not educated. And so I, the first thing that I uh, that I'd like to accomplish by this book is to educate the reader on what history was actually like 123 years ago. Um, particularly in the area of women's rights, both general rights in terms of the suffragette movement, and then more specifically reproductive rights. I very intentionally do not take a, a stance um, in this book. Um, I, you won't, you'd be surprised probably if you knew what my position is on abortion. But I, I really think that a lot of people don't know how dangerous it is to take rights away from people and what it can result in. In 1900, birth control was illegal. It was illegal to share information about it. It was illegal to buy it. Um, and we had 2000 immigrants coming into the country every day. Most of them were young, they were poor, many were uneducated, and it was New York was turning into a rabbit warren. It was it was full of disease. It was suffocatingly congested, um, and and people were dying incredibly young. Babies, the infant mortality rate in 1900 was 30 percent. 30 percent of children did not make it to one years old, and um, there's nothing more crushing to a mother than to lose a child. And so I wanted to make people think and just consider what it could be like if we're too quick to let go of our rights. And, and I, when I was pitching the book to, um, to publishers and agents, my headline was, are we taking a U-turn in history? And, and I think that to some extent we have been. Um, and so my primary overriding goal is to educate my readers through a, a compelling story, uh, hopefully a compelling story, but to educate them to what it is like when you give things up that are near and dear and taken for granted. Yeah, absolutely. And it's it's not too hard to imagine it all happening again. <laughs> I mean, right now, I mean, it's just all happening right around us. And it's like, whoa. And I remember my mom is closer to your, I'm in my fifties 
I'm a uh, Gen X person. And I just remember being a little girl and my mom always talking about women's rights are the most important thing to preserve. And I was like, what do you mean? Everything's fine. You know, it's all good. <laughs> like we're, we got it. We've done that. And then it's like, oh, okay, wait, I'm now I'm more mature and older. I'm not a teenager anymore. I'm thinking, oh, she was, she had a good point. <laughs> she was talking about, because she had lived through that. She had seen what it happens when you don't have your rights. So yeah. Um, yeah. Unfortunately, you don't know everything until you get, you get older and you're like, oh, okay, great. This is a, this is not good. But anyway, um, next question. What experiences from your personal life have wound up in your fiction? Well, um, so many, <laughs> so many. As I said, I've lived through a lot of situations and time. Um, I think most specifically the characters that I wrote about in the medical field and the hospitals are characters, are composites of ca many characters who I dealt with in my career. Um, and, and through most of my career, until the last decade or so, women were still secondary characters, both in medicine as well as in hospital administration. And most of the ones who came up into the C-suite came up through the nursing channel. So they had a very strong nursing orientation. And as such, many of them were not uh, leaders who could take on an uh, entire hospital. Some were, but many were not. Um, some of the, the arrogance in the book towards others um, definitely came from situations that I had encountered and also the connectedness of the women to take on major goals was something that I really began seeing in the last two decades of my career. And that is really, without spoilers, that is one of the themes in the book that I was also hoping to impart is that very few people do anything great alone. That it's usually the collective energy of many people of talent. And maybe the person at the helm is who they have the statue for or name the act for, but nothing big happens in a vacuum. And um, I was hoping to show that in the book and help my protagonist learn that in her journey. Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's a great point. And that comes through pretty well. So last question, what's the best piece of writing advice you would, has, have either been given or that you would give to someone else that was starting out? Try to sort through the criticism and take what's gonna really make you happy and grow. Of, of course, you hear everything. And now that the book is out, I've had lots of great reviews and I've had a few reviews that people were harsh then and sometimes it felt unfair and I just brush it off and I just keep going because to me the world is not behind writers the publishing world is not behind writers writers generally don't make much money they generally can't make a living off of their writing and everyone who I know likes to read so, you, you know, if you're going to have it both ways, you got to really encourage the writers. You got to get them out there. You've got to get their voices out there. You need to be encouraging to them. And so I try very, very hard when I'm interacting with other writers to 
really focus on the positives and encourage them to keep writing. I Absolutely. Incredibly yeah. important. That's really good advice. Yeah. Just to, that's you've, you've put that in, in such a nice way that, you know, just don't worry about it. That's going to be okay. You know, oh, yeah. and not, not everyone likes spaghetti. I mean, like, I don't understand why people don't like spaghetti, but some people don't like spaghetti. I'm like, okay, that's crazy. But there is no thing that everyone in the world likes. It's just even the most thing that you think everyone would like, you know, it's just whatever. But and I think hone, you're on your audience, make sure you know who likes your work. And that's the, those are the people you need to market to. You don't have to convince the naysayers to like your work. Go after the people who do. And that's how you sell your books. Absolutely. Yeah. It's just like dating. Does the one that the person that smiles back at you, there's the one you go talk to them first. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Just leave those other people alone. They have, they'll go find their other sour puss people and they'll, they'll be happy. So tell us what is up for you next. What are you working on the first book? Is there anything, are you, what are your, where can we find you? Are you going to be doing events? Where, where can people find you online? Just give us the whole um, scoop. Okay. Um, I have an author webpage, janelobrubin.com. You can see my name below. And um, that is the location for everything you want to know about Jane. Um, not only does it have um, the events that I have coming up, and I do have quite a few large venue events that are going on the calendar, but um, I have been asked to a number of book clubs. A lot of things are still in pencil. Um, I have been asked to facilitate every month a book club. And that's kind of nice because they're paying me to do that. And that's always nice to get a little income from your hard work. Um, so my, my website is also the source of my blog. And so every few weeks I write a blog about, it started out as a blog about retirement, which didn't last very long. And, um, <laughs> and I um, write about scenes from the book. I have photographs of lower Manhattan. And so it's sort of take you through the landmarks in the book and, and the backstory that I couldn't add to my book because it would have been too much of a history dump. But for people who are interested in that part of the world, it, it, it adds a lot of flavor. Um, I am working on Threadbare, uh, working very hard on getting that ready for Level Best Books to take a hard look at. And then I have a third book that I'm imagining right now in the trilogy. And that is going to be that period of history before and into World War One. And one of the characters in the family will somehow get involved in the war effort. And the thing that's very fascinating to me about that period is the interconnection between World War One and the Spanish flu. And that the war became the vehicle to transmit the flu globally. And, um, and it was so much worse than COVID. I mean, it was devastatingly worse. And um, and I've been doing a lot of background reading now, just trying to formulate how I want this character's story to go. And so I'm very excited about starting from scratch with the novel. Um, the other thing that I've been doing is I decided that it was time for me to get involved with women's writers organizations or writing organizations. And so I hitched my wagon to the women's fiction writing 
Association. And I ended up, because of my background and work experience, um, being asked to head the 10th, 10th um, anniversary meeting uh, conference in Chicago this September. So um, that was a bigger bite than I had expected, but um, all is going well. It's going to be incredible conference. Incredible people are going to be there at both taking pitches as well as presenting wonderful material and a lot of writers meeting each other. And I'm very much looking forward to that. Yeah, that'll be great. It's uh, Chicago, right? It's taking place in Chicago. That's correct. Yeah, yeah. yeah that'll be fun. I'm I'm going to be there. So it'll be really, I can't wait. It's, it, and I always am, uh, I admire greatly anyone that puts together anything because it is not, <laughs> it's not easy, trust me, but it's, it's well worth it. And it's well, just, I it's have always a great yeah. team. As I said before, one person never does it alone. I have yeah. a fabulous team of people working together with me. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. Um, we look forward to the next book. Everyone needs to run out and get in the hands of women. It will resonate with you for in many different ways. But I think the most important way is that it's a really well-constructed novel um, with great characters and a great story. So thank you for sharing that with us. Thank you, Sean. Have a good day. You too. 